Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this spectre. So begins the Communist Manifesto, written in 1848 by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Welcome to The Rest is History with me, Dominic Sambrook, well-known Marxist, and my sidekick, wishy-washy, Brixton, centrist liberal Tom Holland. Hello, comrade. (laughs) Hello, comrade. So today we're talking about communism, the great political theory that dominated so much conversation in the late 19th and much of the 20th centuries. And actually, looking back, Tom, when when we were kids, communism and capitalism were locked in this genuine competition, so it seemed, for the hearts and minds of millions of people. I mean, when you survey the world, the map, I can remember those maps from my kind of childhood, the Soviet Union and all its satellite states, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Poland, Hungary, East Germany, and so on. You had in Africa, you had places like Angola, Ethiopia, Mozambique, you had Afghanistan, Mongolia, of course, the People's Republic of China, which is still technically communist, as are Cuba, Vietnam, and Laos. But there's been a huge falling off since then. So do you think communism is is gone or is it still with us? I think it's such a potent idea and it won't surprise you to know why I think it's a potent idea. I can't Um, wait for this. (laughs) I I think it has very, very deep roots and maybe we'll we'll come to that. Um, And I think that um, the... The, the guiding kind of ideal that it embodies, that, that all of humanity can be liberated and that, that all of humanity can share in an equal justice, is one that has a, an obvious appeal. And yeah. I guess that um, when we talk about communism, we tend to mean the, the specific form that it has, has taken in the writings of Marx and then the way that it's evolved with Lenin and with Mao and through the, the, the ideological war of the 20th century, as you said. But I, I do absolutely think that, um, I mean, it's, you know, China, potentially the greatest power on the face of the planet remains a, a communist state. So it's ridiculous to say that, um, you know, communism has gone the way of Nineveh and Tyre simply purely on the political level. But I think it also has, continues to have a huge influence on the, on the cultural level. Um, yeah. So I would say that uh, that probably the, the the two most influential communist thinkers at the moment would be uh, Antonio Gramsci, Italian, um, in the, writing in the 30s, who um, argued that that essentially kind of culture is the way for uh, social justice to be established, and that's been hugely influential. Um, in all kinds of ways that that that, uh, that people understand the operation of culture, um, yeah. and I'd say Franz Fanon, who, the, the the great um, Martinique um, francophone writer, who has essentially kind of articulated um, a, a Marxist understanding of world politics with an emphasis on how um, colonized societies and the global South can fight back against what he casts as oppressive imperial domination. And I would say that, that both of those thinkers have, have an, you know, colossal influence. I mean, I mean, I go so far as to say that actually, in a way, you could say that Marxism is more influential at the moment in the United States than it is in China. Discuss. That's interesting. That's an interesting argument, but they're both offshoots, aren't they? From the sort of the main trunk of communism, which we associate with Marxism. So there had been ideas about a communist society before. So Thomas More in his book Utopia 
at the beginning of the the turn of the 16th century has this vision of a society where people share property in an idealized sort of post-feudal world and the diggers in the English Civil War. Well, but I mean, these are communist of a kind. They're kind of proto-Marxist ideas, you could argue, couldn't you? Can I... I do you want to bring in? Book? Do you want to bring in your book? Do you want to? Do you want to do your uh, thing? Not, I mean, I'm everybody's waiting for this. I'm not going to mention my book, but I would say that the the arc, the, the prototype of yeah. a communist society is the early church. I'm only the, I'm giving you a hard time, Tom, um, for no very good reason because I actually find you very convincing on this. I I genuinely think you're onto something. So go for it. So I think the prototype is the description of the early church in the Acts of the Apostles, where. It says that um, the apostles selling their possessions and goods gave to, to anyone as he had need. And there's an obvious echo there of, of Marx's famous dictum from each according to his ability to each according yeah. to his needs. And essentially that that posed a kind of challenge to Christians, which is, um, is, is this a kind of realizable ideal? Yeah. And it's hard to overemphasize, you know, the the degree to which in the Roman world, the rich and the powerful assume themselves to be morally superior to those who are poor. And Christianity represents a really profound challenge to that assumption. And in the fifth century, you start to get the, the notion of a, a kind of class war that is motivated by Christian doctrine. And there's a, there's a, actually a British thinker called Pelagius who argues that humans can redeem themselves from sin through their, their own efforts. And this manifests itself in a kind of particularly radical Pelagian thought with the idea that, um, the whole of history is an expression basically of the war of the rich on the poor. And that therefore, if you get rid of the rich, then you will have paradise on earth. Yeah. And this gets opposed by particularly Augustine, the, the, the great father of the church, who says that humanity has fallen. We can't possibly realize heaven on earth. And so the best that can be hoped for is that the rich will continue to give to the poor. And I think that in essence, I mean, you could say that there you have communism against social democracy set yeah. up in, in, in the fifth century Roman Empire. It's basically Karl Marx and, and, and the Cadbury's family, the sort of philanthropists <laughs> yes. of, uh, yes. St. Augustine is a, is a, is a chocolate yes. magnate. <laughs> Essentially. And, and Augustine, Augustine's influence is obviously, he's the huge influence on the church. Pelagius gets branded a heretic. And so yeah. over the course of the church's history, there's an extreme anxiety about um, any suggestion that uh, Christian teaching, particularly in the gospels, you know, woe to the rich, the, the, the last shall be first and the first will be last, that these sayings of Christ should be, should be put into social practice. But yeah. you do start by, by the, I mean, essentially the Reformation at its radical fringes is an attempt to put that into practice although of course you have you have calvinists who think um if you're rich and successful that shows that god is smiling on you and um yes. that, that actually being wealth being a wealthy sort of merchant or something is a sign of god's favor right absolutely but but on the the very very radical fringes so be even before the reformation with the hussite rebellion you have um this amazing communist i think it's the first attempt to, to realize a communist society um in european history at a place called tabor which is named after a, a mountain in, in 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 the new testament um 
and knights and beggars all join up and start digging this huge great city and they're doing it against the backdrop that um god is going to judge the world and that paradise will be established on the earth i mean and you can see that that idea of trying to 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 build a, a kind of a, a universal equality um and that the new jerusalem will be built on earth you know you can yeah. see that that that's that's kind of waiting for then you've got um about the, the anabaptists in munster who try to do the same you've got the the diggers in the the english revolution and all these figures are influential on marx so the diggers are now in a what's now what's now a, a gated community ironically isn't it in way yes, sort of stockbroker yes, that's right stockbroker yes. belt yes <laughs> um so let's fast forward a bit to the 19th century and the emergence of what people now think of as as communism and now I would argue that that's, and, and a lot of sort of Karkan communists get very offended if you, and very cross if you say this, but I would say it's, it's so obviously a kind of political religion that it's barely worth arguing about. I mean, it even Completely. later on has icons and banners and sacred texts and, and prophets and all the rest of it. But the interesting thing about Marx is that Marx is not from a, I mean, he, he's from a converted Christian background, but he's actually a Jewish heritage, isn't it? But do you yeah. think Marxism is basic? I mean, you obviously you do because you think everything is Christian, but you're, you're going to, why Not don't everything. you? Everything. We, we agreed that fascism wasn't. Any remaining skeptical listeners that Marxism is basically religious? Well, I, I think that, I, you know, the thing, the famous phrase that you read out at the, the top of the show, a specter is haunting Europe. Um, the powers of old Europe have entered into Holy Alliance to exercise this specter. Uh, I mean, on the most basic level, Marx has, I mean, he's, he's kind of like a Gothic writer. He's haunted by vampires and werewolves yeah. and, um, the language of Das Kapital is, is kind of shot through with the idea well, that blood there are supernatural and parasites yes. and all that yes. sort of stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think on the broader level, um, Marx takes for granted that the oppression of the poor by the rich and the powerful is wrong. But he doesn't want to um, say that this is a metaphysical position, because that would immediately kind of lead him wandering into theological dimensions, into the into the dimension of kind of the you know Christian thought. So he 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 claims that it's all entirely scientific. Well, that's the key and, word, isn't it? The scientific yeah. nature of and materialist, yeah. and historicist. Uh, so he sits in the, in the British Library, number crunching the facts and lots of graphs, lots of tables, supposedly proving the inevitable fact that, um, you know, th that all of history is a class warfare and that it is predestined that, um, the wealthy will be overthrown, that, um, there were a classless paradise will be established. Um, and it seems to me that essentially the whole, pretense of marxism to be scientific is a kind of oedipal attempt to deny its christian heritage i think wow that's a big and claim. indeed it's jewish heritage because it fascinatingly one of marx's ancestors was rabbi Lev, who was um a famous rabbi in uh, in 16th century prague um who um According to legend, fashioned the golem, which was a kind oh, yes. of a, yeah, yeah. A, a kind of monstrous automaton, a kind of proto Frankenstein monster, which is in a way a kind of sensational pre yeah. prefiguring of the relationship Brilliant of the bourgeoisie metaphor. to the proletariat. So there's <laughs> there's all kinds of strange stuff swirling around there, and I, I think the idea that it's scientific is is one for the the birds. Really, I mean, what do you think? 
you're a Marxist. Well, I mean, I, I think it's scientific. <laughs> yeah, I think it's scientific in the sense that um, so many theories and ideas developed in the 19th century were were thought to be scientific because it was an age obsessed with science. So it's the age of Darwinism and it's the age of you know uh, new technology and the railways and all the rest of it. And so any new theory, almost by definition, is going to be sort of grounded in in an, in scientific language and whatnot. And and science in this case, it stands in for, I mean, Marxists will often talk about being on the right side of history. So this idea of the inevitable progress of history, and it's a scientific law. I mean, science sort of stands in for, for God, doesn't it, in this, I think, in this um, formula. So Walter Benjamin, the great German sort of 20th century philosopher, he compared Marxism's kind of hist historical materialism, as they called it. He compared it with the another automaton, the Turk, which was this sort of supposed robot um, that was actually a bit of a con um, uh, created before it was sort of created in, I don't know, was it the 18th, 1990th century or something? And he sort of said, you know, what's hiding under the, the, the pretense of all the machinery is actually theology. And is this sort of, you know, that's the, that's Marxism's dirty little secret that is basically theology posing as, as science. And I've always sort of thought that. I mean, I can remember when I was at university meeting people who sort of said, you know, at the age of 20 with all their, their years of experience of the world, they would sort of say, Oh, well, I'm a Marxist. And I'd often say, well, how do you know? How have you decided? How at this sort of age where we basically know nothing? And we're still reading lots of stuff. How do you know that this is the blueprint that explains the world? And of course, that was a stupid question because I thought it was a political position, but it wasn't. It was a religious position. It's a statement of religious identity, I think, rather than a, a, a sort of, a, a, um, well, I mean, that's obviously not always the case. There are, there are people who are more skeptical Marxists, but it's not necessarily always when people say they're a Marxist. It's not often, it's not always a sort of cognitively carefully developed position often it's inherited so i don't know if you've read david aronovich's book about growing up in a marxist sort of milieu i mean marxists in britain in the post-war years where marxism where communism was a tiny thing they had their own dentists they had their own circles of friends they had their own newspaper they had their entire own view of the world it was a closed system not unlike a religious cult and in many ways well, i think that's what it is well Gr gramsky was a great admirer of the catholic church and it's interesting that across particularly Latin America, but, but also in, you know, Catholic countries in, in, uh, in Europe, really the kind of the battle between Roman Catholicism and communism is often a kind of, you know, it's a war between siblings and they're both closed systems that once you, once you buy into it, then everything makes sense. Yes. And I, and I think also the other, the other obvious parallel with, um, with, with, with Christianity is the way in which, um, people get branded heretics and the way yeah. in which um, dogma and doctrine has to be adapted to, to fit changing circumstance. So Marx, you know, Marx's philosophy is clearly bred of the very distinctive circumstances of, of the mid 19th century. So the revolutions that are going on in 1848 in continental Europe, which end up leading to his exile to Britain, where he and Engels, who is um, basically kind of running factories in, in Manchester yeah. and going fox, fox hunting, hunting on the yeah. weekend and things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are, so he has a kind of eye view of, of the way in which the industrial revolution is impacting um, towns like Manchester, cities like Manchester yes. and, and, inflicting appalling suffering and you know mark says you know profits have to have beards he has a big beard 
And <laughs> there you go. No but, further proof needed. But, but, I, what, but also, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I think also that, that one of the things that you get from both Marx and Engels, oddly, is almost no one writes more in, with a greater sense of awe about the achievements of the bourgeoisie than Marx. I mean, he, you know, he, 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 the way in which he describes the achievements of bourgeois civilization, its restlessness, its, its kind of global reach, its potency, um, it's, it's a stupefying portrayal of the achievements of Victorian Britain. And there is also a kind of weird sense in which, um, if you look at, you know, it's not just Engels with his, his fox hunting. Marx is kind of, you know, I mean, he's going on, seaside holidays isn't he i think he's the isle of wight he's a great fan of the isle yes. of wight i think <laughs> yes that was it because he went to ventnor didn't he for his the last fortnight of his life and last holiday yeah. and it rained every day and that's it's so, kind yeah. of very it's like a family holiday so in the 1950s <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so you've got the specifics of marx's circumstances and engels and then of course you've got the very different circumstances of um revolutionaries like lenin who come well, from a very very different to- world That's what I wanted to move to, because, of course, the great irony with Marxism and with communism is that Marx thought exactly that. All you were saying about him and the achievements of the bourgeoisie, He one reason he likes the achievements of the bourgeoisie, or is he awed by them, is because they have the seeds of their own destruction in them. So he thinks the more capitalism develops, the more sort of magnificent it is, the more quickly it will crumble. It's the grave digger. Again, that gothic quality. Yeah, it is a very gothic um, expression, isn't it? They're sort of digging their own graves. So he thinks it's going to, the revolution is going to happen in somewhere like Britain or Germany, you know, the most advanced industrial civilizations. And actually it happens in Russia, which is the one place that he had thought would be leading the counter revolution. He'd sort of seen all this counter revolutionary potential in Russia. So Russia does have two industrial cities, St. Petersburg and Moscow, but otherwise it's a huge sort of agrarian giant full of peasants. It's exactly the wrong place in many words, in many ways. It's the wrong place in many ways for, um, for communism to to take root. And the key figure here is Lenin, because Lenin is the person who says, well, actually what you need, you know, it's not just, you don't just need the course of history. What you need is a revolutionary vanguard, a vanguard party that will take the levers of power, stage a coup, grab power, and then push this through whether people, so basically whether people like it or not, because it's acting in the course of history. And then, and I think right at the beginning of the, I mean, right from the outset, when Marxism is put into practice, you have basically violence and dictatorship and you couldn't have it otherwise i think also you 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 have the offer of elitism so yeah the the, the genius of marxist leninism is that it, it it offers you i mean basically so the marxism will appeal to people who who are very concerned with social justice who who, who want equality across the world who want justice um what lenin does is to to fuse that with the sense that you need a, a controlling elite um, and on, yes. the, on the theme of, of communists in London, um, I, I, I did a, br- a brilliant radio piece once about this, um, this room above, above what's now a curry shop in Whitechapel, um, where I think for about kind of four weeks, there was a communist conference going on. You had Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg, Gorky, Zinoviev, <laughs> all kind of staying in this, this one yeah. bedsit. I always thought it would make an amazing sitcom. Yeah, yeah, yeah sitcom. Very <laughs> good. Oh, Stalin! Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, and I think that they, that, um, the, the brilliant irony of that is, is that 
that was where the Bolsheviks, i.e. the, the majoritarians, the, the, the people in the majority were yeah. staying. And I, I think the Mensheviks were, you know, the, the people in the minority were, must have been staying in an even smaller room somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Stalin because Stalin kind of hangs over every discussion of communism because, yeah. you know, Stalin murdered millions upon millions of people. And and the question with someone like Stalin, and what I find so fascinating is, is Stalin an aberration, which Marxists will now often claim, oh, Stalin was somehow some imposter. He was a monster who'd somehow got his hands on the experiments and it all got out of control. Or, for example, there's the alternative view, which is, I don't know if you've read these monstrously big books by Stephen Kotkin, this American scholar who's working his way through Stalin's life. And he says, no, everyone's got Stalin wrong. Stalin wasn't a madman. Stalin wasn't even necessarily a sadist or you know, any of these things that we imagine. He's not sort of traumatized by his childhood. He's none of those things. Stalin is actually a very good Marxist. He spent all his life immersed in Marxist ideas. He's written tons of incredibly tedious articles about aspects of Marxism in Bolshevik journals. And actually, the reason that he kills all these people is because he thinks that's the way to achieve the paradise, that he's actually a good Marxist. And that's the thing that, you know, when he makes his decisions, that's what always drives him on. And that actually... The violence is inherent and the killing is inherent because that's the only way you're going to achieve this this good society. Well, I, I think that, that when you look at um, at Stalin or Mao or indeed Hitler, you have to bear in mind that by their lights, what they're doing, they're, they're doing for the best. Yeah. And that, you know, there's, it, the idea of killing millions in the in the cause of of bringing about some ideal earthly situation is, is so monstrous to most of us that it, it takes such a, a gear shift that I think it's difficult to do that. But I, I agree. I think that um, that Stalinism develops logically out of Leninism, which in turn is a logical attempt to adapt Marxist theory to, as you said, the kind of unexpected fact that the, the revolutions happened in Russia and not in Britain or Germany. But I also think, Tom, that by its nature, it has to be violent. Because there's always a confiscatory element in in communism. You know, some people have to be brought down. And those people are never going to say, sure, have all my furniture, <laughs> you know, um, have my second home, please take yeah. it. You know, there's always going to be violence is inherent in it. And violence is in the language. I mean, Lenin's language was extraordinarily violent. And Lenin, of course, famously said, you know, I used to like music and listening to nice, you know, songs and fluffy animals and, and, and nice books and stuff. But now I, now I can't do that. I have to be harder than hard. Those things will weaken me for when I become dictator, you know, when I'll have to kill people. And he's as good as his word. And I think in that to that, the idea of there being a separation between this sort of cuddly Marxism that Lenin supposedly incarnates and then the sort of, um, you know, the mass graves Marxism of Stalin, I, I think is a false image. Anyway, we need to take a break, Tom. Sorry. Okay. We have to take a break. The, the listeners are very keen to go and overthrow social conditions and collectivize agriculture. So I think we should let them do it and we'll have a cup of tea. And then you can say what you wanted to say after the break. How about that? Are they not going? They're going to go and listen to adverts, aren't they? Well, Marx would approve, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, we'll see you after you've um, you've indulged some capitalist uh, impulses. See you in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. On Thursday, we're offering that natural companion piece to today's discussion on communism. We're talking Elizabeth I with the historian Tracy Borman. And here's an early warning for your diaries. On the evening of Wednesday, the 21st of April, we are going to do something very exciting. We're going to do our first live episode of the podcast, live on the internet. And it's going to be all about assassinations. Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Indira Gandhi... Tom will no doubt be talking about Julius Caesar. Uh, <laughs> we'll be, not to anticipate Caligula. Tom. No, yeah, Caligula, yeah. of course, very good. Yeah. Loads of Romans. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll post a link on Twitter that week. Everybody is welcome, so you can join the show, and we'll be answering the questions live. You can throw your abuse at us then, and there's nowhere for us to hide. It will be a lot of fun for everybody. Now, Tom, I cut you off, and you wanted to say something unbelievably interesting about communism <laughs> <laughs> well i yeah unbelievably interesting uh but i'm going to combine it with um the first of, of the many many questions we've had and this is from duncan hibbard where he says is communism inherently totalitarian um i'm wondering about lenin and stalin um isn't isn't stalinism essentially economically based so it, it it's about trying to 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 reconfigure the economy um Mm -hmm. and once you do that then inevitably in a sense you have to kind of seize control of every possible lever there is no space left for anyone to do anything that the government isn't controlling um and that there might be i don't know other i mean i mean gramsci would be maybe an alternative form of of communism that puts an emphasis on control of of culture rather than of the economy okay so i would say it probably is inherently totalitarian because it's not pluralist you know, if you're a communist, you don't tolerate, you know, you can't really tolerate challenges. Um, I think, and, and of course, Lenin's idea of kind of democratic centralism is that basically when the parties agreed, everybody must agree. And you can't have, you can't, you know, Marx and Lenin hated dissent or disagreement. I mean, they spent an enormous amount of time trying to crush any sort of disagreement among their own kind of little group of schools. So I, I think it probably does have an inherently totalitarian um, bent. And I think, Tom, going back to what you're saying, 
Stalin, Stalin thought that Russia needed rapidly to industrialize because he completely imbibed the kind of Marxist idea about the course of history that you'd become an industrial country and then you'd become, you know, a communist one. So he pushes that through, you know, and he demands total control of, and particularly, and it's mainly the collectivization of agriculture. I mean, that's what kills a lot of people at the turn of the 1930s. And he does no other source for, of revenue. Yeah, because he needs to, he needs to, yeah, exactly. He, he wants to rapidly, rapidly industrialize. He wants to sell grain abroad. He wants to get people into the factories. He wants to cut out. He hates the idea of, you know, private ownership among the peasants. They're you know, the kulaks who have built up their own little small holdings. He does, he wants to crush them. Not because he's a, I mean, his latest biography would say not because he's a, a mad monster, this sort of slavering demon, but because he's a Marxist, because he thinks, that's what you do to get the good society. But he's a Marxist who has turned his back on a fairly fundamental proposition of Marx that this is uh, it's something universal. I mean, he's pushing the idea of socialism in one country. He is, you're right. And, yes. And so that, I mean, it's, it's, it's that basically that, that, um, I guess once he's made that decision, once he's, he's hitched his start of that idea, an awful lot then follows from that because. Yeah. Immediately, people in other countries are, are, are cast as enemies, um, and immediately the focus has to be on a, a kind of, um, I suppose, a kind of communist nationalism. The list of countries that you, at the beginning of the, the program where you listed as communist, didn't include North Korea. And I, I guess that, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of monarchy, isn't it? With a, yeah, with a dead, I, rather like St. Cuthbert. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, a, a kind of dead body presiding over yeah. it, which shows the, the kind of weird ways in which communism can evolve. But I mean, it's, it's a lot of the, a, a lot of the kind of the most monstrous crimes are where communism fuses with nationalism. So in the Ukraine, for example, um, Stalin, the famine that Stalin causes there. I mean, obviously, if that had been in Russia, in, in closer to if it had been just outside Moscow, you're right. I think there would have, yeah, there might have been a different kind of reaction to it. Um, I mean, to our producer was hectoring me. Hectoring is probably a bit harsh, but he was giving me <laughs> a hard time. He said, you know, if Stalin is, 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 is just a good Marxist, why does that, how does that explain, um, the backlash against Stalin after his death in 1953? You know, Khrushchev makes the secret speech in which he denounces Stalin's crimes. And, and then there's a sort of slight thawing in the Soviet Union. I mean, I think there's no doubt that Stalin became incredibly despotic um, and that, you know, power corrupted, as as it were. But I, I think, you know, a lot of those people who are, I mean, there's an interesting question about how Marxist are the leaders of the Soviet Union after the 1950s or how much are they, I mean, in some ways, they're quite conservative. You know, they're no longer pushing sort of to create the new Jerusalem. They're defensive. They're simply they're, what we have, we hold, I think. And I think, and they're defense, um, yes. And they're defensive because, because of the, the role played by the party, which becomes a kind of elite. And if, obviously, if you're in, you know, if you're in the party, you hold power. And if you hold power, then you want to keep hold of it. Yeah. So I think these, it's the weird thing is, you know, these are people who in Red Square, uh, you know, every May, they stand there on the, on, on, on the, the balcony, which is on Lenin's, um, on Lenin's tomb to go back to our St. Cuthbert analogy, they're standing above the sort of mummified body of Lenin. And all these people are parading past with pictures of great icons of Karl Marx. But Marx, if he saw those men, probably wouldn't recognize them as, as, you know, his comrades because they're, he's always been an outsider, a radical, 
a journalist tilting against convention, whereas they are the ultimate defenders of convention, you know, Brezhnev and all these sort of identikit gerontocrats in their sort of grey suits. I mean, these aren't people that, that Marx would sort of, in, I don't think he'd enjoy their company. And I guess you can say the same about China, where it's Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so in China... Again, that, that question of, of, of now, what, you know, is it a communist state? I mean, clearly, uh, formally it is. Do, do the Chinese part, do you know the Communist Party in China, do they, are they communist? Do they believe it? I, I don't think they are. I mean, I think, you know, in the same way that you could possibly, well, it's an interesting one, isn't it, Tom? I mean, were, were people Christians? You know, were yes. all these medieval monarchs? <laughs> they believed that they believed they were Christians, I suppose. But you know, did they when they read, read about turning the other cheek and <laughs> all that sort of stuff? It's harder for a rich, some of them did. passing through the eye of the needle and and all that sort some of, of stuff. Did. Some I mean, of them this did. is the, I think it's probably the same thing, isn't it, with uh, with the, com- the leaders of the Soviet Union or indeed of the China that they they sort of th- they think they believe it, but they don't live it. Maybe is a distinction. I don't know. We should move on to another question. We should move on to Beatrice Mouse. Um, now Beatrice Mouse says, for those who say it hasn't been tried properly, isn't its failure baked in? Properly ends up with economic failure and tyranny. I mean, this is the stuff of a thousand social media arguments. Has it been tried properly or not? Do you think, Tom, it's been tried properly? Do you think it's been given a fair crack of the whip? Well, I think, I think, um, to, to go back to the, the key perspective of Marx, it's about justice and it's about liberating people to fulfill their potential. And if you think of it in those terms, rather than in the the supposed ironclad economic laws that will make it happen, and the whole kind of ideological apparatus that has been built up around it, I think that um, that, that ideal absolutely preserves its, its, its power. And to go back to what I was saying at the beginning of the program, I think that, um, you know, a lot of, of, uh, a lot of what, what is, is, um, agitating uh, people in the West at the moment is kind of recognizably bred of that matrix. I yeah. think. Um, I, so you, so you, you, so that's a slightly evasive answer. You haven't said whether you think it has or hasn't been tried properly. I think the assumption is because we've had communist States, we won't we think have. that there is such a thing as, as communism. Yeah. Um, but I think that if you think of it um, again, perhaps again, a bit more like a, like Christianity or something like that as an ongoing it's a constant impulse, living, almost. an approach, uh, an ideal, um, an attempt to to shape your life by certain ideals. Yeah. Then I think that um, the idea of, I mean, I, and I know that that of course Marx is is talking about the, the fact that there will ultimately be a class of society. So that is baked into his perspective. Um, but it's very telling, I think, that in his writings he barely talks about it. And, yeah. and even Lenin, I mean, he, you know, he's obsessed with the dictatorship of the proletariat and you need the dictatorship of the proletariat to usher in what will ultimately be the, the classless state. Um, it's just that it never arrives. So I yeah. guess to the degree, the, the, the degree that, um, you know, the new Jerusalem will never be built on earth. The, the, the classless society will never arrive. Um, yeah, failure is, is inevitable because it's not going to happen because it's, it's, um, you know, this is a theological myth. Yeah. But, but I think that, that as a way of governing your life, um, clearly it, it, um, it, it provides meaning for, for people across the, the face of the, uh, of the planet. And it continues to convulse and agitate the way that, um, 
you know, certainly British society, American society, uh, European society is, is, is operating at the moment. I think, I think that if you think of communism as a, uh, as a, as a way of living rather than an inevitable endpoint, I, I don't yeah. think, I think that that's would be my take. See, what I would say, Tom, is if, even if you think of it as a way of living, if you look at all the regimes that have, that proclaim themselves communist, and, and there were quite a lot, I mean, there are, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, dozens. Um, it's, there are lots of examples of people where they've, you know, they've taught, Capital, Das Kapital in, in schools where they've had all the banners, where they've had the pictures of Marx, where, you know, academies have been devoted to this stuff, where they, where they've really thought they were following it. And, and in every one, there's been, you know, repression, violence. Yeah. And, I mean, I, that, that there's a point at which you sort of say, well, maybe this isn't a coincidence. Maybe this is kind of baked into the, to the, to the, to the project from the very, from the very outset. I think because of its anti-pluralist nature, because if you claim to have a monopoly on truth, and if you claim we are carrying out the will of history, as all these regimes did, particularly, you know, from 1945 onwards, then you're always going to get into trouble because any form of challenge is illegitimate. Yeah, and I think I think the the idea that there are ironclad economic rules that have to be followed, even when they don't actually work, yeah, is a is a huge part of the problem. But on the broadest level, I think it is impossible to build Jerusalem on Earth. I think Augustine is right. I think yeah. that you know we are fallen, however you want to put it. Humans are not capable of living like that. And it's true, you know, it's true of communists, it's true of Christians, it's true of Muslims. Wherever you try and build the ideal state without acknowledging the fact yeah. that humans are humans and things are going to go wrong, you, <laughs> you end up with disaster. Have you ever seen this stuff or read this stuff about Boris Yeltsin going to America? So Boris Yeltsin, I think he's the uh, what is he then? Is he the he's a, he's a big figure? I think in in. He's just been kicked out of the Politburo, but he's still big in the Russian parliament or, or he's a big in Moscow party boss or something. Is he mayor, he goes of, off to mayor of Moscow? Exactly. Mayor of Moscow, I think he is. He goes off to, um, visit NASA near Houston. And on the way, he, he says, I'd like to, I actually want to see what America is really like away from all the handlers. And they take, he stops in a place called Clear Lake and he goes to a supermarket called Randall's. And there's pictures of him in this supermarket inspecting the freezer cabinets and stuff. <laughs> and it's just a kind of piddling little supermarket. And his, his ashen faced, he is horrified and he gets in his car afterwards. And all the people, his aides said, you know, he didn't speak for kind of 40 minutes or something. And he was so distressed. And he said, how we have failed, you know, the Russian people. It's just abominable that Americans are living like this. And, you know, the supermarkets in Russia have kind of a dead dog in them or something. And, and that's it. And, and he's, he's just, and it's astounding the extent to which even the kind of elite were kind of living in a, in a complete fantasy world. And the, the spectacle of what capitalism was actually really like was just this dreadful shock when they, when Yeltsin realized. Is it Reaganite propaganda that, um, Gorbachev basically realized the game was up when he went to California and flew in a helicopter over LA and looked down at all the swimming pools or something. Is I don't that, know. That's good, I, um, I don't so know. I think certainly one of, one of, um, Gorbachev's key aides was a man called Alexander Yakovlev. He went to Canada and he became friends with Trudeau and, um, he was devastated by what he saw in Canada. You know, it was just like a, to see how ordinary people lived was because, of course, people were told that the only the elite live like this, that, you know, in Russia, you believed that the kind of Western elite were selling a lie and that everybody was actually really downtrodden and miserable. 
And to get there, I think for a lot, and the same with Oleg Gordievsky, actually, who we talked about with Ben McIntyre, the defector. He too, you know, he was in Copenhagen. And again, he was, you know, standing there thinking, we are the baddest. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But I think, you see, I think that's been reconfigured since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism in, in the Soviet Union. Because that, uh, that spectacle of wealth, of course, was precisely what shocked Marx and what you what you get in in capital away from all the graphs and the figures is this sense of kind of molten anger at the way in which um the prosperity of the bourgeoisie depends upon you know children starving and people being evicted from their homes and and i think more particularly um people in distant colonies you know being worked to death so that the bourgeoisie can have have sugar with their tea and i think that um actually today the spectacle of of western wealth operates for many people in a similar way. And I think that, that that's a, a huge dynamic in the the kind of understanding of, of global relations. The idea yeah. that, that Western wealth has been built on systematic exploitation. Um, and so Lenin's idea that imperialism is kind of the last, you know, the ultimate manifestation of bourgeois civilization. I think that that still has a, a an afterlife in contemporary culture. It definitely does. And it's very popular. The problem, though, that you have, if you're going to take that line, I think, is how do you explain then you know, the massive rise in life expectancy and living standards in places like in, in Africa and in Asia. So these are well, particularly Asia, but also in Africa too. I mean, the rise in the rise in life expectancy, for example, um, you know, these are pe- never have so, f- you know, in, in many ways, of course, because there are more people, there are more poor people than ever, but, but relatively speaking, the human race now lives longer. We live longer, much more comfortable, much more prosperous lives, insulated from the fear of early death or disease than any generation before us. I mean, that's come at a punishing environmental cost, as we all know. But the, the problem is the, 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 the exploitation of the poor argument. I mean, not everything is based on sweatshops. Anyway, we need to do some questions, Tom. Uh, um, yes. Our listeners, so- if there are any still left, listeners still left, we need, they're probably outraged. Go on, ask a question. Here's one from Chet Archbold, who always comes up with good questions um was the development of some sort of communist ideology inevitable in europe there were some communist like movements before marx but if marx had not lived would something quite like marxism have emerged and that's great isn't it because an awful lot of Marx is that certain things are inevitable and yeah. that uh, you know someone like marx is just epiphenomenal he's just a, yeah. a, a, a bubble of froth on a heaving ocean this is a bit like the question i think we've debated before would the beatles have you know if john and yes. paul had never met would yes. there still have been the beatles there would still have been marxism yeah clearly because marx was merely marx was building on saint simon and fourier and robert owen and um there were loads proudhon of thinkers of this kind and, yeah. yeah proudhon exactly so there was back union and there were other people who who could have been sort of maybe would have loomed larger than than marx did i mean marx was in many ways a genius um i don't think there can be any doubt of that you know a man of enormous intellectual capability which is why you know which is why he became such a big figure and he's a great self-promoter and a great propagandist as well. Um, and the Communist Manifesto is a great read, but there would have been, don't you think there would have been some form yeah, of? Yeah, I do. I think, I think, however, I, I, and again, not to sound like go on my King Charles's head. I, I think that, um, the hostility to religion might have been yeah. less because there were many communist thinkers who were very keen on all the kind of cloudy, fluffy, heavenly stuff as 
<laughs> Marx right. like to dismiss it. So I think I think that's maybe okay. the, the key thing that Marx brought to the party. The producer is gagging for us to do Rick Hunter's question. I, 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 God knows why. But I mean, maybe he is Rick Hunter, or maybe he, Rick Hunter has something on, <laughs> has something on him. Um, so Rick Hunter, no offense, Rick. Rick Hunter says, if the Mensheviks, he's about the Mensheviks. If the Mensheviks had launched the Russian Revolution instead of the Bolsheviks, how would things have played out? Was that ever a real possibility? I would say no. It probably wasn't a real. Well, it would have been a completely different revolution. Tom, what do you think? Well, I think that, um, I mean, the, the, the difference between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks is essentially how brutal are you willing to be, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's basically yeah, how mod- yeah. you know, moderates versus so, radicals to some extent. So I think, I think, yes. So I think that, that a bunch of kind of, you know, centrist dads were never going <laughs> to. <laughs> That's a big. Yeah. I don't think the We're never going to kick off the Russian Revolution. Uh, I mean, the I Bolsheviks, think. the Russian Revolution. I mean, it's the brutality. The Bolsheviks- you said, you said the violence is baked in. And yet the irony, right? The, the, the ambiguity is the, the Bolsheviks succeed because the one thing they offer is peace. Everybody else pretty much is arguing for Russia to carry on in the First World War in the summer of 1917. Um, and the Bolsheviks make progress, particularly among the army, because they're the ones who are saying, no, we'll have peace with Germany. We'll stop fighting straight away. And all their rivals are sort of shilly-shallying and saying, well, we're still committed to the Allies. So the Bolsheviks win by saying peace, but also they're prepared to be more extreme. They're always prepared to go further than anybody else. And so... Of course, if anybody else had been, you know, if Kerensky had stayed in power, then yes, the history of the 20th century would look, I mean, it would look very different, I think. Similar dialectic going on with um, Trotsky and Stalin. And Stalin ultimately wins out again because he essentially, I mean, weirdly offers, you know, peace and, and uh, yeah. stability. Whereas Trotsky's all about permanent revolution. And, well, Trotsky's a loose cannon, isn't he? He's a completely yes. loose cannon. And, um, yes. Stalin is, Stalin's the sec, I mean, Stalin is the secretary. He is the boring guy in the meetings. He's got yeah. all the, done all the paperwork. I, I, I love the idea that, uh, that both Lenin and Stalin are the kind of safe, stable. <laughs> Um, anyway um liz j great question here would a um, non-communist russia have been able to resist and ultimately defeat nazi germany or was it the unique nature of being a communist state that allowed it to fight the war with such brutal force and disregard for human life that's a great question and you've just written a review of a book on stalin's war haven't you i have yeah very extraordinary book actually by a man called sean mcmeekin now (laughs) mcmeekin he has this great idea it's brilliant central idea of you know let's Instead of thinking about the war just about Hitler, we should think about it through, you know, Stalin is the key to the war, not Hitler. So, you know, Stalin, look at it through Russia's point of view. It's Russia that, um, Russia also invades Poland. Russia swallows at the Baltic states. You know, Japan is largely motivated by fear of Russia. So Russia allows you to tie together sort of the East and Western theatres, the sort of Pacific and the European theatres of the war. Um, but he also has this extraordinary argument, which slightly to me under, well, um, fatally undermines his book, which is that the Allies should have attacked Stalin as well as Hitler. <laughs> so we should have, having declared war on Hitler about Poland, we should then have declared war on Stalin when Stalin went into Finland. We should have fought in, defi- in defense of Finland. He thinks that Britain and France, if we'd, if we'd fought Stalin in Finland, that Roosevelt would have joined in, which I don't think he would, and that Mussolini would have joined in on our side as well. So that would be a very different, um, second world okay, war. Anyway. I've- uh, you're stalling me off there. That was entirely my fault. I sent it you. It was you took me down, down the t- wrong course. Um, would a non-communist uh, Russia? Maybe not. Actually, I mean, the nature of communism meant that you could discipline and control millions of people. And as you say, you know, it's the idea of sacrificing people in the name of the greater good. That sort of came naturally to Stalin's commanders, and the sort of no step back rule 
that the Soviet commissars are always sort of drumming into their offices. I mean, that feels very Stalinist. And, and, you know, military historians, people like Max Hastings will say, you know, the Russians were prepared to do whatever it took and pay any price. You know, when British generals or American generals were a bit weedy about sacrificing their men, you know, the, the, the Stalin, Stalin's generals knew that basically if they didn't sacrifice their men, they'd be shot themselves. So they was, they were very effective in that sense. Wasn't the same thing going on with Napoleon's invasion of Russia, though? Well, well yeah, it? that's the argument. And then, of course, and in the First World War, the Tsarist officers treated their men like absolute. Yeah, they treated them a cannon fodder. Also, um, uh, I mean, it's when um, it's when the Nazis invade that um, Stalin slightly resurrects some of the old traditions of Russia. Also, he, he's yeah, he sends well, he sends an icon up in a plane that yeah flies around uh, the, the city limits of Moscow. So that's Stalin. Stalin's a much underestimated politician because he's much more flexible than, let's say, Hitler is. He's cannier than, than Hitler. And I think you're right about there's always this. People often forget about Russia that as recently as the sort of mid to late 19th century, about 40 million Russians have been serfs. They're basically made slaves. So the sort of violence and, and inequality was kind of was was baked into Russia, Stalinism or no Stalinism. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think we've got time for one more question. Golly. Uh, um, um, do you want to do the the, the, the space question? Yes. So this is uh, Richard Goldstein, and he asks, yeah. if technology continues to rapidly improve, isn't a communistic system inevitable for earthlings in a thousand years, if not a hundred years? When there is no barrier to material well-being, wouldn't competition-dependent livelihoods become obsolete? There's a lot of communism in science fiction. I love the fact that Richard Goldstein may not himself be human when, when he talks about earthlings. Uh, yeah, there is. You're right. And there is a communist group called the Positists. The Positists, um, Dennis Healy complained about in his memoirs that he was being heckled. The Positists were supporting Tony Benn in the Labour deputy leadership election of 1981. The Positists believe that because communism is the future and because communism, because it's the future and it's historically inevitable, communism you know, is, is, is identified with technological modernity. The positivists believe that if there were any other civilizations in the universe that were more advanced than us, they would by definition have to be communist. So they thought the revolution would probably be brought, and they still do think the revolution will probably be brought to, to earth by people on flying saucers who will impress us with their communism and then will convert us. We'll con- you know, we'll all become communists. I don't find that very plausible. Uh, and I don't find Richard Goldstein's argument very, I don't think it will become inevitable, actually. I think it goes against human nature. You brought up Tony Benn. Yeah. Who, who Great I learned mine, as you know. from your book, um, got stung on the penis by a wasp. In the bath? In the, I think. And no, I think when he was gardening, wasn't it? But a kind of interesting parallel to, to Marx, who, who had a huge boil on his penis and wrote to Engels about it. So. There you go. Wow. Great heroes. This is what happens. Great, this is what happens. Great heroes of left, socialism. Left, left wing of the spectrum. Isn't it? <laughs> when you get into that world, boils follow. Um, brilliant. Well, I think, uh, I think yeah, the grave digger of our podcast has, <laughs> time is the grave digger of our podcast. I think so. this, this sort of highbrow analysis is precisely what ne- is needed to, to close the, the conversation about Marxism forever. Well, time has been largely called on communism um, internationally. It's been called on us to today. A reminder that on Thursday, we're talking about Elizabeth I with Tracy Borman. So you can't ever accuse us of having too narrow a field of interest on this podcast. Anyway, thank you for listening. Enjoy the revolution and see you soon. Bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.